Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Our guest on the podcast today is Jeffrey J. Matthews, the George Frederick Jewett Distinguished Professor at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. He teaches American history and leadership and has written four books, the most recent, Colin Powell, Imperfect Patriot, uh, brought him to the 2019 Kentucky Book Festival, which uh, the book has been called by one reviewer as a, quote, compelling, clear-eyed portrait of one of the more magnetic figures in modern American politics. I'll talk with Jeff about his writing, his dozens of articles and books on leadership, and his role as a management consultant, and uh, maybe get a preview of his new book, which is uh, titled Bad Generals, Bad Admirals, Unethical Leadership in the U.S. Military. Uh, Jeff, uh, welcome to Think Humanities Podcast. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. It feels like coming home uh, to Kentucky, where, as you know, I went to, to UK. And so any opportunity I get to come back, even if it's virtual, I'm happy to do it. Well, that's uh, you must have read over my shoulder. And I know you didn't do that because uh, you were uh, at one time a citizen uh, of the of the southwest part of the United States, uh, Nevada and Arizona. And uh, you did come uh, to Kentucky uh, for your doctorate. What 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 uh, brought you to uh, the Bluegrass State for a Ph.D.? Well, I can tell you when uh, I finished uh, high school in New Mexico, my, my father was a career military officer and my mom's German. And we had moved around a lot uh, and but settled in uh, New Mexico at the, towards the end of his career. And I finished high school and then I went to college in Arizona and I was actually a business finance person. And that led me to Las Vegas, where I started my banking career. And while I was working in banking, uh, I was also going to night school at UNLV in Las Vegas. And so I got an MBA at night while I was working. And then I also got a master's in history at night. And my mentor for the history program was a professor by the name of Andy Fry. And he became a really important mentor. And when I told Andy that I wanted to kind of retire early from banking and, and uh, become a, a history professor and historian, uh, I really didn't know that much about academia. And so he, Andy Fry, he had said, we're going to put together a list of 10 places to apply for a PhD program. Uh, and he said the criteria are going to be um, not necessarily where you go, but who you study with. And uh, he said the number one person on, on the list was to study under George Herring at Kentucky. And I had never heard of George, uh, but I did want to become a Vietnam scholar because my father was uh, in Vietnam on two tours. And George uh, and Andy said there's no better, no better person to study under than George Herring. I'd never stepped foot in Kentucky. Uh, I remember calling my parents, uh, I'm quitting my job and I'm taking my daughter and we're moving to Kentucky. And there was just silence on the other end of the phone. Um, and it was one of the smartest things that I ever did. Well, that's a great story. And you would not be surprised that uh, George Herring's name pops up uh, fairly often when I'm talking to historians or scholars uh, and the influence that 
uh, George Herring had on their life and, and on their, their scholarship. I don't know if you know her, uh, the uh, academic dean and, and uh, head of the history department at Moorhead, John Ernst, who's on our Kentucky Humanities Board. Uh, uh, John uh, says and has such glowing things to say about uh, George. Where, where you happened, did you happen to be in school with, with John? John, John was a little ahead of me. And so by the time I got to school, John was already teaching. And so I met him through George. Um, and as you know, George kind of has this large kind of cadre of, of students now who are out teaching uh, like me. And it's, it's a really nice, close community. And, and certainly George's wife, Dottie, is a big part about keeping all of us together. And, um, and so it was, it was just a wonderful experience. And, and I would also have to say that Tom Appleton was, was a great help to me when I arrived in the department too. He was still at the Kentucky Historical Society, but he was teaching part-time and, and Tom uh, was instrumental in helping me publish my first article, which was on uh, Barry Goldwater. And uh, Tom, uh, to this day, is a dear friend and, and I'm just so happy when I can come back to Lexington and to see them all. Well, we'll certainly have to, uh, we'll talk about your, your other book you're writing now and we'll uh, talk about how you can maybe come back and visit us uh, next year at the Kentucky Book Festival uh, with with that book. But there is a um, there has to be another story about uh, banking and and business consulting and history, though. You don't see those uh, listed uh, too often on uh, resumes and, and vitas. Uh, you have such a an interesting background. What was it about banking and, and consulting that led you to that night school class and a master's in history? Well, when I when I was an undergraduate, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in, and, and my father said, well, you should major in business because you can get a job. It sounded like good advice, uh, and so I took it. But uh, during, while I was an undergraduate, I did realize by taking multiple history classes that, boy, I, I really love history, American history in particular. And But by the time that, re that full realization came upon me, I was already probably a senior in college, and and so I tell my students now, I graduated from college and I had a 2020 plan. I, I was going to be in business for 20 years and then I was going to switch and teach for 20 years. Uh, and that was just the plan. And so when I got into my banking career in terms of just kind of moving forward on that plan, I figured if I go to night school, that will give me kind of a, a leg up and make me feel like I'm moving towards my goal of the 2020 plan. Uh, and, and then again, I think just because I was financially very lucky to be in banking at that time in Las Vegas, which was a big boom town uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And then under the influence, as I mentioned, of, of Andy Fry, he just encouraged me to uh, to accelerate my plan um, and by 10 years. And so uh, it was it was really some good mentoring, but also just kind of that instinctual feeling. While I really like business and I, and I still am engaged in business to, to this day, my true passion, my true love was, was history and teaching. Sometimes when uh, the the term consultant, the title consultant is used, it's um, not all, not always, but often it's a turnoff to uh, to some. Uh, uh, let, let's just say in broadcasting, when the news director heard that a consultant was coming into town, uh, he went, uh oh, they're after me and they're going to change the way I operate this newsroom. And sometimes that's true in business. It may or may not be the same. How does one. Um, trained to be a consultant in business as you have uh, consulting uh, companies uh, on your way uh, up. You teach it still, I, th I think. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later in the uh, broadcast about a, 
a consultancy that you do with a, a tech company, uh, with a gaming studio. So uh, how does one um, begin to mold themselves into uh, being a business consultant? Yeah, for, for me, and I'm not sure if this happens with many people, certainly there are consulting companies where young people can join early on. And so they, it can be a career track for, for young people uh, to work for uh, a consulting firm like Hitachi or Bain Consulting or things like that. But for me, and I think it happens for other people, it's a less direct path. And so it was starting a professional career in terms of gaining practical experience, seeing mistakes, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and then maybe as a practitioner, someone asks you to come guest speak in a class. And so you start talking about your experience and maybe you start teaching a class. And then someone um, says, uh, you know, they have a problem at their company that they're trying to solve. And then a name gets passed around. Well, I know someone, uh, right, who, who, who's been thinking about these kinds of organizational problems. And uh, one person introduces someone to another. Um, and then typically after you get that first consulting job, uh, if it goes well, it can lead to a second one and a third one. Um, and so I think in my personal experience, when I came to the University of Puget Sound, they asked me if I would teach leadership courses and I hadn't taught leadership before. I'd only had practical experience with it and, and historical knowledge. Um, and so I really kind of gave myself a crash course, which has been lasting 20 years now, about trying to learn more about leadership, failure and success and uh, the best way outsiders can help companies achieve kind of their goals. Uh, and so after I'd been here for about six or seven years, I decided I needed to get more practical experience. My banking experience was getting dated. So I just put myself out there as a consultant and I uh, asked a local company if I could come in and be of help to them at a very low uh, fee. Uh, and they uh, said yes, they, they would like that. And then that learned, uh, turned into a five-year relationship. Um, and so from there, I've just been able to kind of pick and choose uh, when, when time allows because I have my day job teaching and, and writing uh, that I but I do like to consult when I can because it helps uh, in terms of real practical issues and, and whether what I'm teaching uh, is correct. Uh, you know, does it really work? And, and so for me, it's just been, been a blessing, uh, really a luxury. Tell me what it was about Colin Powell that uh, brought you to where you are today. Uh, we'll talk about the book. Um, he's uh, described earlier, uh, magnetic, uh, this this iconic figure in American uh, history, American life, uh, certainly uh, for those uh, who are of a certain age and know his professional uh, work. But uh, reading your book and knowing a little bit about uh, his, his uh, childhood, his his bringing up, and I'm going to ask you about that in his uh, being brought up. I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment. But was it something about an early examination of Colin Powell in your other work uh, on leadership that uh, he stood out and you decided to, to broaden that research and, and study of him and, and eventually write your book? Yeah, exactly. It happened like that, Bill. But my second book that I did with a fellow UK grad um, and, and the University of Kentucky Press published this book was called The Art of Command. Uh, it was a leadership book based on military history. And um, I, I wrote some of the chapters and my partner Harry wrote some of the chapters and we also outsourced some of the chapters. But, but what my chapter was uh, on Colin Powell. And <clears throat> Um, and so one of the things that attracted to me him to begin with, and this we're talking 15 years ago, 
was in leadership studies, there's been a lot of focus on not just studying great leaders, but also understanding how followers work uh, and how they contribute to the success of organizations. And so there's a term called followership, which talks about the best kinds of subordinates. And it didn't take me too long to realize that General Powell, when we're trying to understand his career and his success, that a central element of success was he was an exceptionally um, competent subordinate to very powerful people, both military leaders and civilian leaders. And those uh, leaders prized what he, he was able to do for them. And they were the ones who were instrumental in promoting him and mentoring him and getting that next position and next position. Because unlike uh, most army generals, uh, General Powell never led uh, troops like at the division, the large division level, and only briefly for months at the corps level. So his success was in many ways more as a staff officer at, at senior higher levels working in the Pentagon year after year. And so he was a model for me in that book to talk about the concept of followership, to say, we think of Powell as this great leader, but in truth, in addition to those leadership skills, he had these other kind of important bureaucratic skills uh, that were instrumental in helping his superiors, and, and that's a big part of his story. I'm talking to Jeffrey Matthews, uh, who is a professor at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, uh, a, uh, a business uh, uh, expert and uh, uh, an expert on leadership, but also a biographer of, of Colin Powell, Imperfect Patriot. And Jeffrey, for our listeners, uh, again, maybe those who might be a bit younger or uh, don't remember him uh, in the headlines like uh, we do, tell us a little bit about uh, Colin Powell uh, before he got into the headlines. What, what uh, his growing up, his, uh, where he was raised, uh, uh, some, of the, um, some of his uh, situations as, as a child. Okay, sounds good. He was, Powell, Powell was born in 1937 in Harlem. Uh, was raised in the South Bronx. Uh, his parents were both working class immigrants from Jamaica. Uh, they, they were both hardworking people in the garment district of, of New York. Uh, and he had a large extended family. Uh, and in the South Bronx where he, he raised, it was a very ethnically diverse uh, neighborhood. And Pal had all sorts of friends from all different walks of life. Um, Pal himself as a child was fairly aimless. Uh, he well, very good natured and he had lots of friends. Uh, he seemed to lack drive and he seemed to lack direction and ambition and, th and these are even by his own uh, admission and uh, he wasn't especially good at school and he wasn't an especially exceptional athlete in any ways he wasn't really involved in student government uh, and so when by the time he graduated from high school the only reason he went to college is because his parents insisted on it and pal said he had no ambition to go to college and but he ended up going to city college of new york um, and this is, was a, a major turning point in his life because uh, he still didn't know what he wanted to do. His parents wanted him to be an engineer, but he wasn't that good at school. So he dropped out of engineering and ends up taking a degree path in geology because he heard it was an easy major. Uh, and even academically, uh, it was very challenging for him. But his saving grace uh, was that he found the ROTC program there. Uh, and that's when the light went on for him that he really found his vision in life, his purpose in life. Uh, and I think it was kind of that community, that family feel that ROTC can give uh, young people, that they're part of a community, their structure, uh, high standards, things that he was used to with his own parents, but now that he had moved away from home, he has essentially found his home away from home. And then that's kind of sets the basis then for his career. 
When did he begin? Um, uh, again, I'm, I'm sort of using headlines as a metaphor for the time that he was uh, uh, known to the world, known to uh, the nightly newscast, that sort of thing. But uh, his his rise in the uh, in the ranks uh, before he even became a general, uh, how, where was he stationed? What what kind of work did he do uh, where other people looked at him and said, uh, this is a young man on his way up. We need to uh, continue to uh, promote him and uh, and he'll be worthy of that. Uh, so did that did that take a long time for him to build this uh uh, this support that he had that uh, eventually took him to the White House? Yeah, it is a it is an extended story, but I would say that he was successful from the beginning of his first assignment, uh, even when he was going through training, but then at first posting in, in Germany, and then he comes back to Maryland. Uh, and then uh, by uh, uh, in the early 60s, he ends up going to Vietnam as one of John F. Kennedy's advisors. He was, was in the infantry, so his career path was a traditional infantry, infantry career path where he was a platoon uh, leader and then a, a, com a company commander. And so when he gets to Vietnam for the first time, he's a captain and he's assigned to a South Vietnamese unit um, and he's injured in that unit and wins a Purple Heart. Uh, and when he comes back from Vietnam the first time already for, for a, a young man, he's already had multiple uh, tour assignments and all have gone uh, generally very, very well, high marks from his commanders. They all remark that he has a maturity beyond his age um, and, and experience. Uh, and he gets these increasingly uh, complimentary efficiency reports that leads to one promotion after another. Uh, and whether he's in uh, the United States in a staff position uh, or he goes back into the field with troops, uh, the, um, his superiors are laudatory that this is one of the most committed, serious, but also friendly, agreeable kind of person, a true leader of soldiers that we would want. And so he keeps getting promoted ahead of his peers and ends up going back to Vietnam for a second time. Uh, and again, uh, while often not in a combat position, a staff position, he does find himself, for example, in a helicopter crash where he helps save uh, a, a general and several other people from the crash and wins another um, you know, medal for that. And so out of the Vietnam experience, uh, Pal, uh, he's, I would say you know, he's amongst the top of his class, uh, if you will, and everyone agrees that he has a tremendously bright future, even uh, when he was a junior officer. When was he um, now let's let's fast forward to when he was tapped uh, as secretary of state. Uh, but before that, uh, positions that he held that might have uh, uh, put him in the limelight, uh, so to speak, uh, and, and put him in front of some people that thought uh, he can not only handle military equation and uh, strategy, uh, but he can probably talk to senators and congressmen and, and he can represent the United States in other places and um, uh, of the world. Um, uh, who who recommended him uh, to, to, to George H.W. Bush, for example? Do you do you know how, how that happened? Yes. And, and I would say that a uh, big turning point comes in the Reagan administration, because during the Reagan administration, uh, his uh, defense secretary was Casper Weinberger. And Powell, for three years, was Weinberger's right-hand man. He was his senior military assistant. And they had essentially developed a father-son relationship. And Weinberger was a pretty influential figure. Uh, and so coming out of those three years with Weinberger, when the Iran-Contra scandal really breaks open, uh, the Reagan administration re, re needs to do a reset on the National Security Council. 
uh, because of all the problems that they got into with Oliver North, for example, and Admiral Poindexter. Uh, and that PAL actually gets recalled back to Washington to become the Deputy National Security Advisor under Frank Carlucci. And after a year, um, Carlucci goes to the Defense Department to replace Weinberger, and Powell gets promoted to become the National Security Advisor. So he's Reagan's last National Security Advisor. And, and it's during that time in the Reagan administration um, that he and Vice President George Bush, uh, H.W. Bush, become friends, uh, and there's a high level of respect that's built over that time. So by the time um, President Bush comes to office, there's a question of whether who should be his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, it's Dick Cheney uh, uh, who becomes right the new defense secretary under Bush. He's the one who really advocates for, for Powell to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The president is worried that maybe Powell doesn't have enough experience uh, yet because he has never led troops at a high, at a division level before and just at a core level briefly. But Cheney convinces him he's the man and, um, uh, and, the, and the rest is kind of history there in terms of the Bush administration. And this sets the stage for Powell to become, of course, very prominent during the Panama War first on television as the spokesman for the administration and followed by the, the Persian Gulf War. And, and it's during this time that Powell really becomes kind of a celebrity figure. Uh, I argue the most trusted uh, figure in Washington, uh, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, even more trusted and, uh, and supported in the president. Was he as comfortable in uh, that role uh, as a, uh, as you said, sort of a celebrity, uh, a spokesperson for the administration uh, as he was behind the scenes uh, uh, in combat or, or serving um, and uh, acting under someone else's uh, leadership? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, for, for General Powell, it was almost the perfect role for him. Uh, because on the one hand, he's kind of the titular leader of the of the uniformed military, uh, you know, more than a million people. Uh, but at the same time, he's also uh, a senior advisor. So not in terms of his ultimate job was to be an advisor to the president, an advisor to the National Security Council and Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, and so not in that optimal position. So again, Powell's role as a subordinate to very powerful people is really a, a, a primary uh, remarkable niche that he has to kind of toggle between being both a leader of people, but also a subordinate uh, of others. And I think he was extremely comfortable. And I, I argue in the book, by this point in Powell's career, he had become the consummate subordinate. I could not have imagined a better person to be in that job, advising the president, advising the secretary of, De of defense. Uh, he was just excellent. And, and even the field generals like Norman Schwarzkopf, they also agreed that uh, only probably General Marshall during World War II was there a better person in Washington, D.C. to advise the president on military matters. You've been given uh, a, a lot of credit for um from reviewers and from people who've read the book that uh, you, uh, at times, uh, because you believe what uh, your research tells you and, and uh, uh, the interviews that you did about him, uh, you've been given great credit for uh, painting quite a, a glowing picture of, uh, of Colin Powell, but you're given equal credit for uh, going maybe out of your way at times to point out the uh, the foibles and the uh, errors in judgment and uh, maybe at times being too much of a subordinate instead of uh, speaking up on on matters of great importance that are still in the news today. And we'll touch on that in just a moment. Um, so um, 
tell us a little bit about what you think he did uh, well, um, the the decisions that he made or advised uh, the, the president or someone else in, in the administration to uh, make a decision on, and also where he might have uh, stood up and, and disagreed with or made a, a different decision. Yes, and I'll actually start uh, to keep things in chronological. I'll, I'll start with a negative example first and, and follow with a positive one. And that is when he was working in the Reagan administration uh, and as a senior uh, subordinate to the Defense Secretary Weinberger during the Iran-Contra scandal. And uh, to shorthand that we were, the United States was illegally selling uh, weapons and missiles to Iran, which is a declared terrorist state. And we weren't allowed to do that, but we were doing it in secret, which also violated the law. We weren't notifying Congress. Uh, and at the same time, we were arming the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, which Congress had outlawed at us doing that. And Powell, as the senior military assistant, he knew that we were doing these things. And he, he was he was opposed to them. And, and so in many ways was Caspar Weinberger. But both of them let themselves be complicit. Uh, and, and in the, those things that they knew what we were doing was wrong. And then when the investigations began, uh, they also participated in covering up uh, what they knew and what the president knew. And so it was an example where I think uh, for military officers, especially senior officers, flag officers, that they need to remember that they swear their oath to the Constitution, to the American people, they don't swear their oath to the president. So they're in this difficult position where the president is the commander in chief, and that is true, but they don't swear their oath to him. Uh, and so when you have clear violations of the law, what you want senior people to do, even at the risk of their career, of course, is to stand up uh, and say, What's, what, what we're doing here is wrong, and, right, and I need to tell my superiors in the military or the Justice Department that there needs to be investigation. Now, of course, it's easy for me to say that, right? Uh, and Powell's an extremely loyal person, and people in the military, of course, prize loyalty almost above anything else. Uh, and it's a difficult thing to do, uh, but, I, but I think those are the kinds of things we expect of our senior ranking military. Um, and I think and there's been some recent examples of, of good role models, for example, General Milley recently in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, there's some just good stories about him, him trying to you know, adhere to the oath uh, and, and, and to remind his fellow officers uh, in terms of who, who their ultimate loyalty belongs to, and that's the American people. And uh, so, uh, on the other hand, uh, something uh, that uh, you felt like he was uh, lauded for and did well. Yeah, so, and I would say there's many examples during the Persian Gulf War that I point to uh, where he's really reluctant for the United States to get involved into a land war uh, in the Middle East. And so, when the question becomes, he, he completely agrees um, after Iraq invades Kuwait that the United States needs to protect our ally Saudi Arabia. And so, he advises we send 250,000 troops uh, to protect Saudi Arabia. But the president also decides, though, that we also need to uh, eject the, uh, the Iraqis out of Kuwait. And, and Powell doesn't want to do this. He's, he's reluctant to, to go on the offensive. Um, and so he makes the case that we should slow down and we should uh, instead use economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, and kind of contain them. The president says, you know, thanks for your advice, but uh, I, I'm, we're going to go in. Uh, and Powell accepts that. Uh, but but uh, he deserves credit for disagreeing with the president. Uh, but he accepts the president's order. And then when Powell comes back to the president and says, uh, we're going to need to send 250,000 more troops if we're going to pull this off, everyone's shocked by that number. 
but the president says to Powell, if that's what you think it's going to take to win the war, then that's what we're going to do. And it's seen as kind of an ultimate lesson of Vietnam, uh, right, where we went in gradually over years and years and years where Powell didn't want to make that kind of mistake. Um, and then I'll just back and one other thing I give Powell a lot of credit for in the Persian Gulf War was he saw, you know, we, we had bombed, we had used essentially an air campaign uh, for, for, for a couple months in terms of bombing before we used ground troops. And the ground war uh, was over in about 100 hours. And uh, it was pretty swift victory. And Powell saw that the objective had been met, that the, the Iraqis were, were fleeing off Highway 80, going to Basra, trying to escape. And we were bombing the Iraqis and all their tanks and people as they were coming out of the highways. And uh, essentially, Powell called Schwarzkopf in the field and said, I think this, we've won the war. And Schwarzkopf said, I, I agree with you. And then Powell goes to the president and he says, Mr. President, we still have the high moral ground here. But if we keep killing these people who are trying to escape, we're going to lose our moral footing. Uh, and he recommends that we end the war. And the president uh, ended the war the, the next day. And so I, I think uh, right, for a military officer, those are the exact kind of morals I, I think we want to have them guide their advice. The objective had been met, which was was not to take over Iraq. It was to eject the Iraqi forces, uh, and the military had done that, and, and therefore Powell said we should get it. Uh, and so I, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Professor Matthews, you must um, have had uh, deja vu all over again uh, in the last a couple of years, almost like it had not ended at all when uh, the um, and more closer to the time period that we're in right now of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, the remarks by our U.S. troops, both pro and con, uh, the debate about whether we should be there, uh, of course, occurred during the uh, the Trump administration and then uh, even before that. Um, it, it's um, it, it's a time when we're hearing so much about the 20th anniversary of uh, 9-11 um, and uh, all of these uh, worldwide incidents and uh, the, the United States uh, involvement uh, uh, being criticized as policemen of the world and so forth and so on. This must have been um, uh, terrifically meaning for you, meaningful for you to uh, have have studied uh, this uh, this one uh, general who uh, had so many roles, uh, and at the same time, uh, history was being made and being uh, written about, and 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 yet uh, some of these things, uh, as we see in today, almost like they just happened yesterday, and it's a repeat of what we've been through before. What, what have been your reflections, uh, your thoughts over the last uh, several days about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the anniversary of 9-11, and what we either have learned or not uh, uh, learned as a country? Yeah, those are great questions, Bill, and complicated ones, to be, to be sure. Um, and, I, and it's interesting in terms of studying the history from Powell's perspective, of course, he, he then as a civilian joins the Bush, the second Bush administration and is, and is directly involved in, in advising and making decisions, but this time not from a military perspective, right, but as the Secretary of State. Um, and so I think in terms of watching 9-11 uh, happen and how the Bush administration reacted to it, um, I think the way they reacted in within Afghanistan at the beginning in terms of going after that mission, I think there was great unanimous support that, that we, we had to do that. Um, I think the question became uh, this question of then what, what's known as mission creep, 
Uh, so you go in with one mission, but then you change the mission to something else. And I think once, my personal opinion is once we had killed Osama bin Laden, that in many ways you could have made the, the argument that the mission objective had been completed, uh, the way it set out to do. But by the time that happened, because it took so long to happen, there was mission creep had set in, and then we got into the nation building mold, which was not the reason we went to Afghanistan originally was to do that. And then once, you, once you've been there such a long time, then it's of course harder and harder to pull out. Um, and it, it's been heartbreaking to see what's been going on now because we have accomplished many good things there in terms of uh, the kinds of things we've been able to do to, in terms of just women's rights alone uh, and people uh, being able to go back to school uh, and then to see, but knowing that our withdrawal uh, is probably going to bring an end to all that ultimately, if not sooner than later, as, as we've been seeing it, it is heartbreaking. Uh, and so it's hard to say what the lesson uh, is, except but I do think this mission creep phenomenon uh, is we've seen historically over and over again, this can cause uh, serious problems for the United States. Uh, and so um, I, I really think one of the lessons to me is that, that we, when we do such enterprises that has to be uh, international enterprises and the United States should not take disproportional burdens uh, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of the United States withdrawing for Afghanistan, but I don't see the European powers wanting to go in there and take our place, uh, right? That's, so I think it's unfair for us to take um, disproportional burden sharing. Uh, not to say we haven't made mistakes, but but I really don't think it's fair. A lot of the criticism we've been getting, if no one has an alternative uh, other than for us to stay there uh, forever. And the comparisons, uh, Bill, that I hear, well, we've been in uh, Japan since World War II. We've been in South Korea since Korean War. And while those, those are all true, we're still in Germany, true. But Germany's not having a civil war. Japan's not having a civil war. So us staying there uh, doesn't have the consequences uh, of us staying in a place like Afghanistan. Uh, right, which is much more complicated, much more deadly. Um, and so, uh, Powell, Powell, it's interesting with Powell because I think early on in terms of the Iraq war, uh, Powell's advice was very good. He, he, he deserves a lot of credit for telling the president after 9-11, don't attack Iraq. There's no evidence that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11, uh, even though Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, they were all arguing we should attack Iraq. And Powell deserved a lot of credit because the president kind of wanted to attack Iraq uh, for various reasons, but Powell talked him out of it for a, for a while, right? Uh, and then I know that you, we've got limited time, but of course this, that will lead us up to Powell's famous speech at the United Nations, where he's making the case to go to war against Iraq uh, which Powell, to his credit, admits it was the, one of the biggest mistakes of his career. Does he regret that? He does. Uh, he, he does. He, he's not one for apologizing for his mistakes publicly too much, uh, but this is one uh, where, where he completely has said uh, he, he realized it's the biggest stain on his record and, and that it'll probably lead his obituary in some ways, to use his words. Were you given uh, access to uh, General Powell? I was. Uh, first, I uh, was given access to his papers, which are at the National Defense University Library. So you have to get his personal permission to look at his papers. And so I did that. And then a couple of years later, uh, I was able to spend time with him uh, at his house in, in McLean, Virginia. And I certainly it was one of the highlights of my career. And as I say, I come from a military family. And so it was, it was quite the experience. He would be uh, in his 80s now, correct? Correct. And uh Frankly, he was 
again in the headlines somewhat uh, during the, uh, the the Trump administration uh, comment commenting. Um, I, maybe it's my lack of keeping up uh, with the news of the day as I once did, but I, I, I haven't seen him make public statements lately. Has he done that uh, during this Afghani uh, withdrawal? No, I have not seen a single statement with the Afghanistan withdrawal. And, and, and even in the Bush administration, he, he was pretty tentative. I mean, I know how he felt, uh, but he's very reluctant to, to, to speak out publicly. He did on occasion, but often after other retired military had also come out, like uh, Admiral Mullen, for example, or or if General Mattis, when General Mattis resigned. And then, you know, so he was more following the lead of some other ones. And, and I wish he would have spoken out more because he's respected by many Republicans and Democrats and especially independents. And I think that gives him a unique perch, uh, you know, to make objective, not partisan comments uh, that way. And so I just there are times where I uh, I had even reached out to him a few times. And um, and when he did speak out, I would, I would send him an email, you know, just thanking him for, for doing it. And at one point I had earlier wrote an, uh, an open letter that I published to him and General Mattis uh, and others to speak out more. Uh, an example of that was, I don't know if you recall when L- uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vidman gave his testimony. Yes. That, you know, and he was being savage, <clears throat> excuse me, savagely attacked. Yeah. And, was, and to me, that was a classic example of a subordinate doing the right thing, which was telling the truth mm-hmm. to, to Congress. And and I just wish, uh, you know, general, retired general officers would have spoken up, you know, in defense of someone who thought, you know, they were doing the best of, of their ability, the best of their conscience. Um, and so I, I, there are times I just wish he would have said more. Uh, unfortunately uh, for the for Venman, it, it didn't turn out well. And um, but that's what happens sometimes when you take a position, take a stand, uh, do what's right. Um, it doesn't always uh, work out for you individually. Uh, we're talking to Professor Jeffrey Matthews, uh, whose uh, wonderful book, uh, his biography of uh, General Colin Powell, is available, I'm sure, at uh, a bookstore, but certainly on Amazon. Um, and we're going to take a pause here, um, hear from our underwriter, Come back and spend just a couple more minutes talking uh, to Professor Jeffrey Matthews after we hear from our friends at Spalding University. The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Uh, Jeff, let's uh, let's uh, sum up uh, our conversation uh, and end uh, wrap up with a couple of uh, notes. I'm just curious uh, about your uh, advice. Now we're going to put your business consultant hat back on and uh, ask you, I'm just curious about what I read about the uh, video game company. Is it uh, Camouflage? Uh, Although it's spelled a little bit differently than you might want to search for on the internet. Uh, 
help me here. Uh, C A M O U F L A J Z Z Z. Oh J J. Okay. Yeah, if, if you type in camouflage game studio, it will come up. Okay. So uh, tell me um, uh, just uh, reading about the uh, the company and uh, in the gaming world, I'm sure that uh, Marvel Comics and uh, the, the uh, Republic and uh, that sort of thing are well known. It was not to me, but that doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, are you a gamer? I, I, I'm not a gamer, and, and, and not only that, I knew very, very little about the gaming industry at all 10 years ago, um, but one of my former students uh, from the University of Sound, um, he was working for Microsoft uh, in their gaming area, and I was doing some consulting work for him, uh, and that at one point he called and said, hey, I'm going to quit Microsoft and start my own game studio, and he was like, Dr. Matthews, you know, do you want to... And so I joined as kind of the business side of the company and as a partner, and that was 10 years ago. And so uh, our, our biggest game uh, uh, that had come out just uh, last year was an Iron Man video game, a virtual reality game uh, with Marvel Studios and Sony. Uh, and, uh, and so that was our kind of our big triumph. And, and now we're working in secret on our next big game, but uh, <laughs> a wonderful experience. And um, so often I do less consulting now because uh, that had taken more of my time in terms of just working at the company. But now we're off running, and, and so I can focus now on, on the next book. Well, and the uh, the next book, uh, Bad Generals, uh, Bad Admirals, uh, Unethical Leadership in the U.S. Military, it almost um, uh, makes one uh, guess exactly what this book is about. But why don't you tell us? Well, uh, what I was really struck while I was working on the PAL book, that there were a lot of contemporary generals who were getting into serious trouble, uh, even criminal trouble. And I was just alarmed by how it was story after story after story of, of generals and admirals. And so I was just kind of flagging it in my mind. Is there a potential story here? Is there a book here? Um, and so when I finished the, the PAL book, I've spent the last two years now working on this new one. And essentially what I've been able to do from an organization standpoint is to say, I'm going to identify seven different ways that generals and admirals have been getting into trouble, both historical and contemporary uh, figures. And so, for example, one chapter deals with war crimes issues. Another deals with uh, insubordination. So, so for example, I use MacArthur as my primary example of an insubordinate commander, but we've also had some contemporary problems. Um, I talk about... um, uh, uh, sex crimes that uh, these flag officers get involved with, sexual harassment uh, and worse, uh, public corruption. There's a huge public corruption in the Navy going on uh, right now, and the last trial of that starts actually November 1st. So I've tried to identify these kind of different types of areas and then kind of give a detailed case study that kind of exemplifies the, the, the problems and um, and then also talk about uh, what can contemporary leaders learn from these mistakes because they see, seem to keep uh, uh, popping up. And, and if, you know, if our generals and admirals are uh, not setting the best example, then who, who is going to set the best example? And, uh, and when they do things that are pretty seriously, we, we need to hold them accountable because otherwise junior people in the military will think that, well, I'm a junior person and I really get wrapped when I do something bad, but when a general does something bad, they get to retire and keep all their benefits and, and things like that. And so I was just very intrigued uh, by that. And um, th- this is not an attack against the military because of course, most of our generals and admirals serve admirably. Um, but any healthier organization I think needs to admit their weaknesses and, and where they fail uh, so we can minimize those. And, and so that's kind of the, the gist of the, of the book. 
want to thank you for your time today and uh, good luck with uh, wh- where are you in the progress, uh, the process of, of writing uh, this is this book? I should be uh, finished uh, sending it to the University of Notre Dame is going to uh, publish the book and I should be sending it to them for review next month. And so uh-huh. it should be uh, out a year from now, I hope. Well, that's good. And we hope it's in in time for the Kentucky Book Festival. I'm sure it will be if you're going to send it off right away. Uh, Jeff Matthews uh, has his uh, Ph.D. Uh, in history uh, from the University of Kentucky. He now teaches at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, uh, and uh, his book uh, still available on uh, Colin Powell um, is available and uh, is quite a read and uh, would suggest that everybody um, pick it up and uh, and learn about an important figure in, in history who will forever uh, be that. And uh, we we also wish him the best and, and uh, the best of, of health as he uh, ages uh, uh, gracefully, uh, let's let's hope. So, uh, Jeff, once again, uh, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it, and good luck to you. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the opportunity. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.